those of you who are not on Eastern time. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in the Department of Health Policy Studies. In early June, the FDA gave marketing approval using its accelerated approval pathway to the new Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm, a monoclonal antibody developed by Biogen that has been shown to reduce the amyloid plaque that accumulates in the brains of patients suffering from Alzheimer's dementia. Though the drug has been shown to reduce the amyloid plaque, researchers are unsure if the plaque is a cause or an effect of Alzheimer's disease, and if reducing the plaque will have any clinical benefit. Critics of the FDA decision claim that clinical trials have failed to produce convincing evidence that the drug does any good. FDA's approval came despite the fact that its advisory panel recommended against it, contending that the clinical data did not convince them that the drug works. Multiple advisory panel members resigned in protest, and after much criticism for many quarters, the FDA finally revised its approval of the drug, approving it only for use in early Alzheimer's cases, compatible with Biogen's initial application, citing the fact that the trials were only conducted on early Alzheimer's patients. Many critics also complained that the approval of the drug will cost Medicare $56,000 per patient per year. One of today's panelists warned that this can break the bank of Medicare. Last week, reacting to the controversy, the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai Medical Center announced they do not intend to use the drug, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina announced it will not cover treatment with the drug. Also last week, the Centers for Medicare and Medicare, Medicaid Services announced the start of a national coverage determination process regarding Medicare's coverage of the drug and is expected to make a decision within six to nine months. I have argued in blog posts and elsewhere that the arguments that get raised against Adjahelm's approval miss some larger points. One, should the FDA require efficacy at all in order for a drug to be approved for clinical use? Prior to 1962, drug makers were required to convince the FDA that their product was safe to consume and met the FDA's criteria for providing product information, use, and dosage on their labels. But the 1962 Keith Alver-Harris amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act added the additional burden of proving the drug's efficacy in addition uh, to in treating the condition for which it was developed. Efficacy requirements add years to the approval process and add to the cost of the drug. Ironically, once a drug is approved for the treatment of the condition for which it was initially attended, the FDA places no restrictions on using the drug in any other setting. Using it to treat a condition for which it was not initially approved is called off-label because the label is not only allowed to state the condition for which its use was FDA approved. An estimated 20% of prescriptions are for off-label use. So here we have a situation where a drug is approved despite the fact that FDA advisors and others think it lacks efficacy, and we're told that respected medical centers don't intend to use it. Yet in other cases, doctors wait several years to get permission from the FDA to treat their patients with a drug for condition A, after which the FDA in principle trusts doctors to use their clinical judgment based on their knowledge, experience, and analysis of real-world trials to treat conditions B through Z with a drug. So why not scrap the efficacy review process and go back to focusing on safety and labeling, allowing decisions about efficacy to be made by those who use the drugs? And question number two, shouldn't complaints about the new drug's cost to Medicare be directed at federal rules that make it difficult for Medicare to not cover virtually FDA-approved drug, making coverage the default position, and prohibit Medicare from negotiating drug prices? Why can't Medicare have the same freedom that Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina and other private sectors insurers, insurers have to negotiate prices and or decide not to cover certain drugs? Fortunately for me and for all of our viewers, I have an outstanding panel 
that is uniquely qualified to respond to my questions. Nicholas Bagley is professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and recently wrote the essay, The Drug That Can Break American Healthcare in the Atlantic Monthly. David Hyman is Scott K. Ginsburg Professor of Health, Law, and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and co-author with Charles Silver of Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare, published by the Cato Institute. And Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and among many other publications is co-author with me of Drug Reformation and Government's Power to Require, to require Prescriptions. After hearing our panelists' thoughts, I'll take questions from viewers of this event. You can enter your questions on the event page or via YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. And be sure to visit the Cato Institute event page for links to additional materials associated with this event. And you, you can enter your questions at any time during this event. Michael, let me start with you. What are your thoughts about the questions I raised? So first, Jeff, I want to thank you for putting this panel together and for allowing me to share this space with two of the greatest minds in health policy. As far as I'm concerned, David Hyman and Nick Bagley, thank you both for agreeing to participate here. So uh, Jeff, a lot of people are angry <clears throat> that the FDA approved aducanumab or what we usually call Agihelp. That's the brand name of this drug. Uh, as a treatment for Alzheimer's. And there are two main objections uh, that you raise. The first is that the FDA should not have approved aducanumab because there's insufficient evidence that it's safe and effective for reducing cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients. And a second and related objection is that the FDA should not have approved aducanumab because, uh, or the brand name version of it, Agihelm, because Agihelm is extremely expensive. Uh, the Biogen is uh, setting the price at about $56,000 per patient per year. And as Nick has pointed out in the Atlantic, there are so many Medicare enrollees that would be uh, eligible for this drug, uh, that would be candidates for this drug, that uh, it could break the bank, so to speak. It could end up costing more than the entire part, Medicare Part D prescription drug program. I want to say a couple of things about each of those objections. Uh, what, the, what the people who raised the first objection are really saying is that they would prefer that patients not be free to make their own medical decisions when it comes to aducanumab. Uh, the people who raise a second objection are admitting that government is a terrible price negotiator, that, that despite the myth that government programs pay too little for medical care, the truth is that they often, or maybe even more often, pay too much for medical care. So uh, a, a little more about that first objection. Uh, it took a long time but medical ethicists and patients' rights advocates over the past several decades were able to and finally convinced even physicians that patients have a fundamental human right to refuse medical treatment, even if doing so will harm their health. It follows from that what we call the doctrine of informed consent, that patients likewise have a right to use whatever treatment they choose, even if doing so will harm their health. That the right to make one's own medical decisions uh, is a fundamental human right, whether you're talking about opting uh, not to receive treatment or opting for treatment. Now, this is not as strange a concept as it might seem in this day and age when the FDA makes that decision for patients on a routine basis. Patients have a right to travel. We would all acknowledge that patients have a right to travel to other countries to use medications that the FDA has not approved. Patients have a right to use prescription and over-the-counter medications that the FDA has approved for so-called off-label uses that the FDA has not yet approved. 
And what this implies is not that the FDA should not, the, the idea that patients have a right to make their own medical decisions does not imply that the FDA should not have approved. Uh, uh, this implies not that the FDA uh, should have approved aducanumab, but that the government never should have blocked it from the market in the first place because doing so denies patients their fundamental human right to make their own medical decisions. Uh, the FDA, unfortunately, exists to, to deny patients those rights, laws requiring pharmaceutical manufacturers to obtain pre-market approval from a government agency denies patients their right to make uh, these medical decisions. If some people had their way, unfortunately, the FDA would still be denying patients their right to choose this drug. With regard to cost, yes, certainly the way Congress has written uh, the, the laws governing the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, uh, approving aducanumab will result in an increase in government spending. It'll increase the burden of Medicare, to, uh, the burden that Medicare imposes on taxpayers. It'll increase out-of-pocket spending for enrollees. Uh, it'll increase Part B premiums. Same, we could tell the same story in Medicaid. It's going to increase federal and state spending on the Medicaid program. But the problem here is not that the FDA approved aducanumab. The problem is that government is a terrible price negotiator. In the Part B program, uh, the Part B part of the Medicare program that will uh, uh, reimburse doctors for administering these drugs and therefore uh, that, that, that will indirectly pay pharmaceutical, uh, pay Biogen for, uh, for this drug, Medicare pays about 106% of the price that private payers pay. Medicaid uses a similar uh, mechanism to set prices the prices that it pays for prescription drugs. These pricing schemes are inherently inflationary. And yet these are the uh, pricing schemes that the government puts in place. They guarantee that the government is going to pay higher, uh, high prices for prescription drugs. And they even increase the prices that private payers end up paying because pharmaceutical companies have an incentive to increase the prices they charge to private payers so that they can get higher prices out of the government. Uh, Another indication that, the, that Medicare is and the government is not a very good price negotiator is the government even requires uh, the Congress even requires Medicare and Medicaid uh, and even and uh, in some cases private insurers to cover medicines for uses that the FDA has not approved. That uh, federal law requires the Medicare program to rely on uh, drug compendia to certify the efficacy of off-label uses, and if those compendia cert, uh, certify uh, those off-label uses, then Medicare has to cover those drugs. So it's going to be very hard for the Medicare program to say no to a drug that the FDA has approved. And taxpayers are going to end up paying through the nose for this drug, not because the manufacturer is greedy and sets such a high price, although the manufacturer may be greedy, but because the government has encouraged the manufacturer to set such a high price and uh, promised that it will pay those uh, inflated prices that it encourages the manufacturer to charge. The solution here to the problem of whether insurers should pay for this drug is the same as the solution to the problem of whether patients should use it. Uh, we, we, sh we should just be letting the patients choose. Different providers and insurers will adopt different rules about whether and when to cover aducanumab and uh, other drugs. Uh, I think, Jeff, you mentioned that the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai have said they will not be administering this, uh, this treatment to patients. 
Uh, and then patients will sort themselves into different insurance plans and health systems depending on their preferences for risk and access to novel medicines. But the solution to the problem of whether it, insurers should pay for this and other expensive drugs is not to get to have the FDA keep denying patients their right to make these medical decisions. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Nicholas, please share your thoughts on uh, my questions and Michael's responses and any other insights, of course, that you wish to offer. Sure, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so I think I'll start by saying that, that I think Michael and I agree on quite a bit here. Um, and in particular, the core problem with the aducanumab approval is, you know, may not actually be FDA's decision-making, although there are some questions that I'll explore in a moment there. The big problem here may be the way that we um, link drug approval to automatic payment systems in Medicare. In other words, as Michael said, under Part B, and aducanumab is going to be a Part B drug, we simply pay the average sales price of the drug plus a 6% kickback to the physician who prescribes it, um, which gives an incentive for physicians to prescribe very expensive medications um, and provides no cost discipline. And so when you know, Biogen is looking at a drug that's gonna be prescribed overwhelmingly to the Alzheimer's population, which is over 65 and on Medicare, there's really not gonna be a whole lot of pushback that it has to worry about from private insurance companies that might otherwise be inclined to say, that's, that's too high a price, we're not gonna include you in our formulary. What they said instead is we got a price taker. We got somebody who's just gonna pay us whatever we say. So we might as well pick a very high number. And that's in fact, exactly what Biogen did. Um, as Michael said, Biogen is not behaving evilly, uh, although, you know, you can certainly apply sort of, you know, conventional moral labels to it, if you'd like, they're responding to incentives. Uh, and the incentive here is simply to push as hard as they can. Ideally, what you'd have is a system that separates the two functions of drug approval on the one hand, and payment policy on the other, right? So you might say, look, FDA is gonna have, make a choice about safety and or efficacy. Um, and then once it's made that decision, we can have a separate discussion about how much and, and to what extent we're willing to pay for the drug that's been approved. Uh, my preference, and I think the preference of a lot of health policy people is to figure out a better way to pay for value, um, which is to say, to ask questions like, you know, given the benefits of this drug, how much are we willing to spend for it, right? Um, in, it turns out, as Michael rightly said, Medicare has not traditionally made good judgments about value when it comes to prescription drugs. So I think, I think at least in some broad strokes, I think Michael and I have some, some real um, points of agreement. On what FDA should be doing or shouldn't be doing, I just want to complicate the story here. I think the question of, of how to calibrate the right level of stringency for drug reviews is a, is a very difficult one um, because you're trying to weigh different values, right? On the one hand, we want to weigh the value to individual patients to get access to needed medications. We want to value physicians' judgments about which kinds of drugs are best uh, going to serve their patients. Those are real values, and the current FDA regime cuts pretty hard into them by saying that you're not allowed to uh, prescribe a drug unless it's gone through full approval. Um, but I think one thing that the efficacy requirement does that, that I haven't heard enough discussion about today is the way that it really forces drug manufacturers to make a demonstration of the efficacy of their drugs. 
And without the gatekeeping function that FDA creates, there's not the incentive to make the investments in the very expensive clinical trials that'd be useful to showing whether or not a drug works. And those trials are actually super important for determining whether or not what you're taking actually serves the, the function that you think it does. We've had lots of drugs with a biologically plausible mechanism of action that have gone through trials and it just turns out they don't work. And we've got lots of drugs that when they put them, we put them through trials, we say, oh my word, these should be you know, widely available to particular individuals or particular treatment, treatment groups. Um, without the pressure to run those kinds of clinical trials, I don't think we're gonna get the development of high quality evidence. Um, the view that, that we can just dispense with efficacy determinations at the FDA level depends on the view that patients are gonna make informed judgments about risk. You know, based on what we know, is it good for me to get that drug? In practice, that's not a decision most patients are equipped to make. They're gonna to defer to their physician. And to be candid, we have a lot of experience where physicians themselves often make poor judgments about what kinds of drugs are efficacious. So, you know, again, I'm not trying to deny the difficult trade-offs at the core of how you create a drug approval system. And I think those, those trade-offs are exquisitely difficult. Um, and we're going to continue debating them, and we ought to continue debating them. But I worry that if we scrap the efficacy requirement, we are going to meaningfully deprive um, ourselves of really high-quality information about which drugs work and when. Um, on whether uh, Medicare is sort of the, the view that Medicare is a dumb payer when it comes to Part B implies that government payment payment payers are always bad. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't frame it like that. And I might respond to Michael by saying that the way we pay for Medicare Part B drugs is just colossally stupid. I mean, there's just no question about it, right? We're not paying for value. We are asking questions. We, we are giving a kickback to physicians. We're encouraging uh, the use of high cost medications. Um, it's really not a good system. And we got to figure out a better way. And aducanumab, I think, shows and displays the bankruptcy of the way that we go about paying for Medicare Part B drugs. But it turns out that Medicare and Medicaid actually are pretty decent at paying for most forms of hospital and physician care, at least when compared to private payers. And here's what I mean. Private payers are much better about paying for Part B drugs because they can negotiate over price. They can pull things off a formulary if it's priced too aggressively. All of that's true. But when it comes to negotiating with big hospital systems, it turns out our private sector insurance companies often really struggle. And the reason for that is there are real, um, real market concentration problems where big health systems have a lot of power to say, look, we're going to charge you a ton for this MRI or for this hip replacement. And you, insurance company, if you bucket that, if you don't want to pay us that much, <laughs> go pound sand because we're not going to participate in your network and good luck selling insurance if you don't include the University of Michigan in your local network. That kind of market power means that these private negotiations often don't work very well. And so when you look at cost discipline across the decades, it looks like you know, neither Medicare nor private payers are perfect at it, but it certainly does not look like Medicare and Medicaid are doing worse than the private sector. Along many dimensions, they seem to be doing better. So to the answer that government is a dumb payer, I think sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And the question you want to ask is, as compared to what? Here, I you know, 100% agree. The way we pay for Educanumab, I think, exhibits and, and displays just how bad we are at saying no to uh, FDA-approved medications in circumstances where we're either going to have to say no or we're going to have to say, that's fine, we're going to cover it, but we're going to pay a lot less for it. And we don't have 
the architecture in place, the institutions in place to make that a reality yet. Thanks. Uh, before I let Michael uh, respond to, to Nicholas, I want to bring David Hyman in on this. Uh, David, California Congresswoman Katie Porter tweeted out on July 6th, quote, patients should have confidence that their treatment plans are based on science, not cozy relationships between big pharma and the FDA and FDA officials. I'm concerned the approval process for certain drugs has been compromised, so I'm urging an independent watchdog to investigate. I'd like to, to ask you, David, first of all, do you, does Representative Porter have a point and also respond to the previous uh, two speakers' points? Well, look, uh, first of all, let me start off by saying I agree with much of what's been said already. Uh, you know, um, Nick has written nice things about my work, and I think very highly of his work. Um, and the same for Michael, who's edited several of my books. Um, so uh, another manuscript coming soon, Michael. Uh, so I'm fucking up to you in advance. Uh, but, uh, not, you know, let me, the peril of going last is you, other than saying, well, I agree with everything that was said, what do you add? Well, a couple of observations, starting uh, with uh, the question about uh, Congresswoman Porter. Uh, you should obviously worry about the drug approval process being affected by things other than what we would want it to be considering. Uh, and particularly when they have a monopoly on who gets into the market, right? Without FDA approval, you can't sell uh, a prescription drug. And so we wanna make sure that the approval process is kosher and above board. That said, the, the specific allegations that I've seen that there were some back channel contacts and discussions, frankly, doesn't surprise me at all. It's in fact exactly what I would expect to happen uh, when there's an ongoing relationship and the enforcement of an ambiguous standard and a back and forth trying to satisfy the regulator. Um, now, there may be other stuff out there that indicates there's something uh, particularly problematic about this particular drug approval. But so far, I haven't seen anything. Uh, Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner, has asked the inspector general to look into this and make sure that everything is above board. Um, you know, I, I think we'll have to wait and see whether there's anything more than the, I think, larger atmospherics of they approved a drug that the advisory committee wasn't so keen on, to say the least. And that raises questions about the decision making. Um, that said, I want to sort of transition to talking briefly about the title of this session and the, the role of politics. So it was politics, science, and money. And the implicit suggestion is that, you know, we should let science guide all of these decisions. Politics is inherently bad and problematic uh, and has no role to play whatsoever. And that strikes me as just nonsense. The reality is the decision to set up an FDA was a political decision. The decision to impose an efficacy requirement was a political decision, as was the decision to have a safety requirement far earlier, but less controversially. Uh, the decision as to what it takes to prove efficacy is something that science can inform, uh, but it doesn't dictate a particular threshold uh, or criteria for deciding it. There may be better or worse evidence, but which evidence do you pay attention to is a matter of judgment. Uh, which you can think of as not, uh, you know, Democrat-Republican politics, but nonetheless a political decision. 
Uh, and the advisory committee obviously was unenthusiastic, but the statute vests power in the FDA, not in its advisory committee. Uh, I think it's a good thing that the FDA has advisory committees and consults expertise that it can't keep in-house on a permanent basis. Um, but that doesn't mean it should outsource its responsibility. It has to make decisions in a larger context. Um, and that also, it seems to me, has implications for how we handle uh, the transition between making the FDA approval or non-approval and then how should we pay for things. Uh, as uh, Nick has, I think, accurately noted, uh, there's a more or less a default once it's approved the uh, CMS, the Medicare agency, is going to pay for it, although it outsourced that decision to a series of uh, regional intermediaries who are in charge of looking at the bills and making a decision. Occasionally, we do an NCD, a national coverage determination, to try and standardize that decision uh, nationwide. Uh, the really interesting thing here is, of course, we're going to make an NCD before the drug has even been on the market, uh, which may uh, deal with the off-label issue uh, by saying we're only going to cover this for certain uh, individuals with certain indicators. You don't want to give it to people uh, with severe Alzheimer's because there's basically no evidence indicating benefit in that population. To the extent there's any evidence of benefit, it's in people who have a much less severe version of Alzheimer's. But the challenge, of course, again, is politics. Uh, the Medicare population is large, it's politically active, uh, and if they have a drug out there that people think works and some of their doctors think work, it's going to be extremely difficult for the Medicare program not to pay and pay through the nose. Uh, on that point, I just wanted to add uh, that although the figure everybody's been throwing around is the Biogen list price, uh, you have to add on top of that, of course, the amount the physician gets paid uh, plus the costs for regular MRIs and follow-up. And the estimates that I've seen basically are in the order of $100,000 a year. Now, maybe we can get that down a little bit, but that's a sizable amount of money, even if only a fraction of the 6 million individuals with Alzheimer's are on Medicare and qualify to get the drug. And we really ought to be concerned about, are we getting value, right? That's what uh, people think about when they're spending their own money. They, they care about the price, but they care even more about the value. And the history of government purchasing is it cares a lot about the price, um, perhaps not as much as it ought to uh, in particular areas. Sometimes it pays too much. Uh, often it pays too much. Sometimes it pays too little, uh, particularly in areas where it has a monopoly position. And then it's the price setter in its entirety, not just hospitals is a partial example of that, but an even better example is, of course, dialysis, where the Medicare uh, program is essentially the sole purchaser. And it's driven the price dramatically down relative to what it used to be. The problem is without an external market uh, figure, we don't actually know what a reasonable market rate is. And in the absence of good measures of quality, you should expect providers uh, will do everything to cut corners, uh, in ways that they might not if they were being paid somewhat more generously. And that highlights, I think, the importance of monitoring uh, the outcomes and assessing value. And those are things that Medicare Part B just doesn't do. It isn't set up to do. It really can't do it. Uh, if we were willing to move this drug into Part D, uh, that 
would create the kinds of incentives for a formulary approach that uh, Nick has already alluded to um, and to varying degrees might take account, better account of value, uh, but it would be visible rationing in a way that we don't much like to do. Uh, and we particularly don't like to do it with public funds when Congress is ready to swoop in uh, and be the rescuer of the poor beleaguered patient who's getting an overpriced drug that doesn't work very well. Um, so with that, um, let me stop. Uh, and I hope I've answered your question, Jeff, but if not, I got to talk about a whole bunch of other things. That's very, that was great, thanks. Uh, I, I wanna remind people if you have questions, you could enter them on our webpage or by YouTube or Facebook or Twitter and the hashtag is hashtag Cato Health. And I received a question that I'm gonna use, uh, I'm gonna punt to Michael because this will allow Michael to respond to Nicholas and David. And it's a way of, because uh, it's re related to some of uh, what's been said. Uh, Michael Rogowski, uh, says, uh, you would eliminate the Kefauver-Harris requirement to demonstrate drug efficacy. This requirement incentivizes high quality clinical trials. How would you, how would these expensive trials be incentivized? Should we go back to an era where only no or low efficacy uh, information is available? So I'm gonna throw that to Michael and then that could be his segue into his replies. Okay, uh, thank you for that question, Michael. I, I will answer that. Uh, by way of answering uh, two points uh, that Nick made. Uh, the first is that uh, Nick mentioned that Medicare often pays less than private payers pay. It, it appears to be a better price negotiator in some areas, but even when it does that, uh, in areas such as physician services, it's because economic theory and evidence say that it, in those areas too, Medicare pushes private prices up through not so much through cost shifting, as a lot of people like to allege, but through other mechanisms that I, I call crowd out and price discrimination. So there's an endogeneity problem in saying that Medicare is a better price negotiator in those in those other areas. And we see this, you could also say the same thing about Medicaid. When Medicaid uh, pays a percentage of what private payers pay, that percentage is often less than 100%, but it still has that that pricing scheme still has an inflationary uh, effect on private prices. It pushes them upward, which uh, economists generally agree. And so, you know, I agree with Nick that that uh, the way Medicare pays for many things is colossally stupid. Uh, I think that uh, I would just ask, how many times do we have to step on a rake before we realize or we admit that we are stepping on a rake? As for Michael's question, the efficacy standard, Nick was basically making the point that uh, we can't get enough information on drug safety if manufacturers were just free to go to market whenever they want. They would not conduct the, the large, lengthy, expensive trials we would need to get reliable information to guide patients' decisions. So we need the, F the FDA uh, as a gatekeeper to require them to do those studies. A shorter way of making that point is that we uh, is that some people prefer that we pay for those clinical trials by taking away patients' rights uh, and freedom to make their own medical decisions. Uh, that is the cost of this approach to uh, getting those trials done. But there are other ways to get those trials done. You can uh, pay rather than uh, withhold drugs from people or tell or block drugs from the market. You can pay people to enroll in trials. That makes those implicit costs that we currently impose on patients by taking away their right to make their own medical decisions, it makes those costs explicit. First of all, it doesn't take away 
that those rights, but it would make those costs explicit uh, because it would cost, in some cases, a considerable amount of money to get people to enroll in a trial where they might have a 50-50 chance of getting a placebo as opposed to the 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 drug of interest and that and i anticipate that nick would say that would be very difficult and very expensive and he's he would be absolutely right to say that but it would be much better that those costs be explicit and uh and that we uh that 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 we uh, pay them explicitly. We compensate people for agreeing to uh, give up their uh, their ability to choose the active ingredient in order for a uh, to subject themselves to a fifty percent chance of getting a placebo in order to advance medical science so that people can make better decisions in the future. Uh, the point is that, there's, that taking away people's right to make their own healthcare decisions is not the only way uh, and not the best way to get those clinical trials done. Nicholas, you want to say anything in response to? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think Michael makes good points about the real costs of a system where we have a single gatekeeper. Uh, my, my fear here is that you want to be careful when you're talking about anything as complicated as, you know, our healthcare system or the pharmaceutical industry to, you know, shoot for ideal structures that just aren't going to materialize. So I, I take Michael to be proposing a system where we allowed anybody to get whatever drug they wanted, at least past some baseline showing of safety, um, and where we would have a lot of public investment in medical trials and lots and lots of compounds tested at the cost of, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars every single year by the federal government that would take over the role of conducting these trials from private pharma companies. Um, so I have questions about like whether government is going to be good at picking the right trials to run, and I would think Michael might share those concerns. But but let's let's even just set that aside. Uh, you know, I think what Michael is saying is we ought to be upfront and actually just as taxpayers bear those costs collectively instead of forcing them onto individuals who are then told they can't get access to a drug. And I, uh, you know, I, I I hear that. I think that might be might be a good approach. I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think that we need to be realistic about the willingness of politicians to put that kind of money into overall drug research. And I think the FDA approach is at, you know, at worst, a second best that we know generates high quality information that then does feed into patient decision making. One thing I'd also add about the whole desire to kind of strip FDA of its efficacy role. Um, one thing we have to re remember is that a lot of patients who are seeking um, many of these drugs are quite desperate and are desperate to get any kind of therapy or treatment. And so part of what the efficacy uh, standard does is say to them, no, you can't have this treatment. And that does feel condescending in some, some circumstances, there's no question. But it also serves a consumer protection role in the sense that what we're saying is, look, we, we wanna protect you from out of desperation, having your kids empty their bank accounts to try to prevent some terrible disease until we're pretty confident that it's actually gonna, gonna make a difference. Um, so, you know, like, I wish I thought that we could get to the nirvana where we had a bunch of publicly funded trials and we could just say, hey, let's get rid of the FSG requirement. People will make informed choices um, that are based on sort of a reasonable assessment of value. I just think it might be asking too much of human beings. David, are you wanting to say something? Can, I, can I? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think Jeff and I have both been around long enough that all of these arguments sound uh, 
like deja vu all over again. Um, I don't think uh, Nick and Michael are, are quite so advanced, but all of these disputes uh, were aired out fully when we were talking about AIDS uh, and the treatment of uh, AIDS with basically desperate people where we really didn't have anything to offer them. Uh, and in you know, one of those curious ironies, uh, Tony Fauci, who's the, perceived as the hero of COVID, was the villain of AIDS uh, for standing in the way of uh, getting drugs through the system. Uh, and, you know, I guess you hang around long enough, uh, white hats turn to black hats and vice versa. But in any event, my point is this is not a new problem, right? Um, people are desperate because they have a problem that uh, they want to try anything and everything under the sun. And there's absolutely a legitimate consumer protection function, uh, which is why I think money back guarantees uh, are something that we ought to be thinking about in dealing with this, uh, in addition to or on top of the FDA efficacy process, right? Biogen is convinced that this drug works uh, and they got it through the approval process. Uh, there are lots of people who think that it doesn't, uh, rather than just automatically paying, uh, irrespective of the value conferred, make Biogen put its money where its mouth is, uh, and they have to refund most of the money if the drug turns out to, not to work. At a population level, uh, that is the population of those who receive the drug, that creates good incentives for everyone, right? It uh, basically takes the pressure off having to make an up or down decision across the board. It allows Biogen to decide who it's gonna make that guarantee to. Uh, or the terms if it's going to do it on the entire population. So I, I think it's important to recognize markets have ways of dealing with this kind of uncertainty uh, as well as people who are desperate. Uh, there's a role for law, obviously, in keeping people from going too far. Uh, but we shouldn't assume that our existing flawed institutional arrangements uh, are the only possible solution. We ought to be exploring other flawed institutional arrangements to try and get to the second best rather than where we are, which is probably third or fourth best. Um, Thomas Gronick asked a question by YouTube. I'm gonna give this to David. Uh, he says the testing should not be conducted by the drug companies, but the studies should be funded by them. He says, as we recall, diazinon didn't work out very well, did it? What do you think about that? David? There's no shortage of drugs that didn't work out very well. Um, that's, and there's no shortage of concerns about uh, having the people who stand to profit handsomely from getting the drug approved can being the people who conduct uh, the trials that present the evidence uh, that the FDA relies on in making, you know, safety and efficacy decisions. Um, but, you know, the concerns that uh, Nick has already articulated about having the government conducting the trials uh, will they pick the right drugs? Will they pick the right protocol? Uh, you know, will this be done by the people that uh, are on top of things and have the right incentives to care about it? Or will this be the kind of people that are the sort of bureaucratic mother may I approach that lots of people are concerned about uh, in dealing with the FDA? Um, in terms of paying for it, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are just an intermediary. Right? This is ultimately paid either by the people that get the drug or by the taxpayers. Uh, and there really isn't much of anybody else who can foot the bill for it. Uh, so we can 
you know, tax the, the pharmaceutical companies and then they'll set their prices at a level to recover a risk-adjusted return sufficient to cover their costs and provide an adequate, uh, you know, dividends uh, or growth uh, to their shareholders. Uh, the alternative, uh, which Michael is pushing for and I've argued for, is socializing and putting on budget the full cost. That's why I argue for a prize system for dealing with drugs uh, in overcharged rather than the highly peculiar approach we followed, which forces people with rare diseases to pay through the nose or not be able to get drugs at all. Nicholas, uh, I saw you nodding your head. Did you want to add something to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think that David and Michael are both correct that you definitely don't want to lock into the current system as being somehow optimal um, and and defending it simply because we have it in place. It's an unusual way to run a market. There are very few spaces in American law where we have a licensure gatekeeping requirement like this one. Um, and the notion that FDA might get the balance wrong, I think not only the AIDS crisis, but the current COVID pandemic suggests that, you know, a lot of these decisions are hard and sometimes the experts don't know best. I mean, I think it's very hard to understand why FDA has not um, finally and formally approved the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines based on extraordinary levels of evidence, but just not evidence that they're used to considering. Um, I think it was a travesty that FDA did not uh, come out and think hard about pushing for a first doses first instead of, you know, collapsing the two doses into a, a very quick three, four week cycle um, in a manner that could have prevented some of the spring surges that we saw, including right here in my home state of Michigan. Um, so I don't think FDA is, gets everything right. And I certainly don't think we should be apologists for it. At the same time, um, you know, I've looked at prize systems in the context in particular of antibiotics, where the FDA system and the current patent system works very poorly. And one thing that struck me in trying to kind of just figure out the numbers, you know, in, in terms of the amount of money it takes to bring a drug to market, it's on the order of, I'm gonna get these figures wrong, but $200 million is a pretty good estimate for bringing a drug to market. Um, I think if you ask politicians to put that kind of money on budget, I think you're gonna get very few drugs tested. Um, so it's true, there's a kind of laundering of the money in the sense that, that we're all collectively paying in ways that we don't always see or notice. Um, but it is a way of, of encouraging the production of high value information. And I wanna be careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Michael, did you wanna say something? If I could something? add something, Jeff. Sure, yeah. Yeah. so uh, the, and this will respond, I think, to the most recent question, as well as uh, uh, Nick's concern about uh, the practicality of moving away from the, the current model toward a more ideal one or a you know, second best but still flawed one, as David might put it. Uh, and that is that the, there, there is a model for making the drug companies pay for the trials but not conduct them. The British National Health Service, which is a government-run system that is both the insurer and the provider of medical care, says to drug companies, look, if you want us to cover your drug, you want us to pay for it, you give us the drug, you pay for us to conduct the trials. If it works, we'll tell you how much we're willing to pay for it, and, uh, and we'll, we'll work out a price based on the benefit we believe it provides to our enrollees. Uh, so insurers themselves, or I should at least the the sort of integrated uh, health system 
that the NHS represents can do these sorts of trials. And it doesn't have to be a government-run system. Uh, we have those sorts of uh, we have a government-run system here in the United States, like the NHS, we call it the Veterans Health Administration, but we also have integrated and prepaid delivery, uh, insurance and delivery systems, or at, at least one in the United States called Kaiser Permanente, uh, that, that have the capability to do the same thing. And th these systems have played a role in, in helping to regulate drug safety. When the FDA was trying, after the FDA approved Vioxx and was trying to figure out if it was leading to adverse cardiac events, the FDA didn't have the information it needed to make this decision itself. The FDA doesn't run these sorts of trials itself. Uh, what the FDA did was it went to Kaiser Permanente of Northern California, which has, which because it is an, uh, an integrated insurance and healthcare delivery system that has a defined patient population and uh, operates under different incentives from the fee-for-service uh, system that dominates in this country. Uh, it has incentives to invest in the sort of electronic record keeping that would be necessary to track all of the patients, all of its patients that receive Vioxx. Because it had all of that information, it was able to do a retrospective observational study of uh, patients who receive Vioxx and inform, provide the FDA the data it needed to conclude that Vioxx was in fact causing these adverse cardiac events, causing uh, causing deaths. And there's no reason that a system like that could not do exactly what the, uh, the, NHS, the NHS is doing, which is say to drug companies, look, you want us to cover your drug? You give us the drugs, you give us the funding to do the trials, we will conduct the trials and then tell you whether or not we're going to cover it and negotiate a price afterward based on the, the results uh, 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 of those trials, what we find out about whether your drug works or not. The reason that we haven't seen those sorts of alternatives to the FDA emerge is because there's no point. You can't, the FDA has crowded out all pr private alternatives uh, to initial drug approval. It hasn't crowded out private alternatives to off-label drug uh, safety and efficacy certification. In fact, all off-label safety and efficacy certification is in the United States is non-governmental. So, uh, but but this is an example of uh, an institution that already exists that could serve as a substitute for the FDA's efficacy standard or even its safety standard uh, if you wanted to completely eliminate any government pre-market approval requirement. The problem is, well, really there are two problems. One, the FDA is crowding out the field, but two, uh, the government at the federal and state level ha have been doing all they can over the past uh, hundred years to try to block this model of health of health insurance and healthcare delivery, often at the behest of uh, of organized medicine, the the physician lobby, and so that's another reason why we haven't seen uh, uh, more private alternatives to the FDA. Can I, want I just to add one additional point? Can, let me just sure, add sure. one additional point. When people talk about pharmaceutical companies conducting the drug trials, it's important to understand what that actually means. It does not mean that in the corporate headquarters in New Jersey or wherever, that they're herding patients in and giving them the drugs and watching them, right? It, it's, this is a complicated web of contractual arrangements where they go to academic medical centers, they go to physicians in private practice. They go to people who are contractors that set up drug trials in other countries. 
and they contract with each of those to conduct the study under highly specified terms, and there's data collection. And there, in fairness, there can be no shortage of funny business uh, and skullduggery in the conduct conducting the trial, in massaging the data, when presenting it to the FDA and focusing on a subgroup rather than the original group uh, and changing your endpoint and so on and so on. Um, but it, it, it's important to understand there are lots and lots of professionals involved in this uh, and we should have reasonable safeguards, but we shouldn't start with a presumption that government is good and pharmaceutical companies are evil or vice versa, right? We're just dealing with people who are responding to the incentives that we've created. And I, I think one of the advantages of the Chess or uh, Kaiser model that I've just discussed is the people who would be running the trials have very different incentives from the pharmaceutical companies and from the people who are currently running trials for pharmaceutical companies because they're in the position of being uh, the person or the entity that is ultimately going or that is going to pay for these drugs if they prove safe and efficacious. And that will presumably impose on them greater discipline when it comes to the sort of skullduggery that David is talking about. They're not going to have the incentives that the people who are running the trials now have to please the pharmaceutical companies by changing what the clinical endpoints are going to be and so forth. Yeah. Uh, by the way, off-label, Medicare covers off-label use of these drugs based upon whether or not they get included in certain compendia recognized by CMS. And this is all done uh, outside of the efficacy approval process uh, that the drug originally went through. So that's another important point to make. I want to segue into an important area that we haven't covered yet. And this is an area of, of much debate even you know, among center-right uh, healthcare policy people. Uh, should Medicare be able to negotiate drug prices like the private sector insurance insurers do in Medicare Part B? Some people say no because uh, it, Medicare is, is such a big dog, has such a huge share of the market that they'll have an unfair advantage, and this would impact uh, um, you know pharmaceutical companies' profits, which would basically result in a decrease in innovation. That's the argument that pharma has, of course, but many free market uh, people take that point of view. Then others say, uh, you know, nobody's forcing the drug company to accept Medicare's counteroffer. They could just say, forget it, we won't sell it to you. We'll only sell it directly to people who are not, you know, won't be paid for by Medicare, uh, you know, in a, in a free voluntary system then that should, that's what a free market's all about. So uh, I'm gonna ask Michael to, to answer that, to respond to that first and then next uh, Nick and then David. Well, my problem with the argument that Medicare should negotiate drug prices is, is that it presumes that the government isn't already negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it is negotiating with pharmaceutical companies at the level of congressional action, and it is losing. It is losing those negotiations horribly. That is why we see the inherently uh, price inflationary uh, drug pricing schemes in the Medicare Part B program and in the Medicaid program. Uh, the government is negotiating with drug companies and it's a terrible price negotiator. And that's one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that uh, drug prices are, are excessive in the United States. I think that the, the government shouldn't even be in the business of 
buying drugs. If it wants to subsidize healthcare for seniors, it should just provide them cash like the Social Security program does, and that then let seniors sort themselves into health plans based in part on how those health plan uh, health plans address this problem of drug pricing. Some of them will take very aggressive approaches and have very restrictive formularies in order to get the best prices they can out of drug companies. Others will have much more expansive formularies, uh, providing access to a wider range of drugs. And if seniors want to pay the higher premiums associated with those plans, they, they should be free to do that. Uh, and what will what will I think would emerge in a system like that is much more price competition when it comes to prescription drugs, much more affordable, much more widely accessible healthcare than under the system we have right now, where we pretend that the government isn't negotiating with drug companies when in fact it is negotiating, but losing. Yeah, I mean, I can, Nick, I can follow up by saying, yeah, so Michael has a point, right? That Congress is the one that set the rules and as a negotiator, Congress made some choices, many of them a long time ago, um, that have put us into a tough fiscal spot. I have a little more optimism about uh, Congress pushing back. Um, at least we have, bipartisan agreement that something must be done. Um, there's not really a whole lot of agreement on exactly what that thing is, but but there is at least a, a, a renewed attention to the question of drug prices that gives me a little bit more optimism. I also think there's real merit in punting these decisions over to a federal agency that can bring its expertise to bear. So, you know, when you talk about Medicare negotiating drug prices, what people have in mind is that we'd have a bureaucracy that's set up to make choices about what and how much we're willing to spend on particular kinds of drugs. And I think that'd be an improvement on the status quo. One benefit that I think gets under discussed, but I think is really key. Um, if we pay through the nose for drugs that either don't work or don't work very well, or are a marginal improvement over what came before, that's what the drug companies are going to invest in producing. And so the way I think about it is less let's, let's you know, like, do we need to negotiate drug prices? Cause that's gonna reduce innovation you know, reduce, increase. My view is we need smarter innovation. We need better targeted innovation that responds to the need for high value uh, treatments and therapies. So if we can get Medicare to think harder about value by empowering them to exclude from their formulary drugs that just aren't worth the money, I think that will encourage drug companies to focus their efforts on um, on high value medications instead of, you know, look, uh, under by any standard, aducanumab appears to be a low value drug. I if it works, it works on the margins. Um, we shouldn't be paying the, through the nose for it. We shouldn't reward drug manufacturers for coming up with an innovation like that. David, what do you think? Oh, so there's there's an old joke about uh, two people who are having a dispute uh, and they go to see the rabbi and the first person states his case and the rabbi says, you know, you're right. And then the second person states his case and the rabbi says, you know, you're right. And then the secretary is standing there and says, rabbi, they can't both be right. And the rabbi looks at him and says, you know, you're right too. So the, the problem here is that uh, I, I agree with what both Michael and Nick have said, right? I do a certain amount of work uh, on government contracting and a lot of work on government failure. Um, and that does not make me uh, enthusiastic about uh, a rate setting bureaucracy uh, for an inherently challenging problem, which is uh, drugs have very high fixed costs and very low variable costs, leave aside biologics for the moment. Uh, 
And if you're a monopsony purchaser, you have huge incentives to, you know, capture the realized drug for as little as you can get away with, um, which creates its own set of incentives, right? Our current set of incentives is deeply problematic for reasons Nick has already alluded to. Uh, I think there'd be a lot of advantages to putting the costs of uh, innovation on budget uh, and, you know, uh, asking uh, Congress to wrestle with the challenging question, how much are we actually willing to pay? Uh, right now, the answer, as Michael points out, has been whatever you want, we will pay, uh, whether it works or doesn't work. Uh, and the sort of second and third best strategies we've used aren't working very well. So I think uh, we need some creativity in coming up with different strategies. Um, I've written about some, Nick has written about some. Uh, Almost anything we do, it seems to me, uh, as long as it's movement in the right direction on the relevant margins, uh, has to be an improvement over what we're doing now, which is the sky's the limit in part B, uh, and in part D, uh, we'll let the private companies duke it out because we don't have a bureaucracy that we think is gonna be able to make these really very difficult uh, decisions. Uh, uh, jump in on an optimistic uh, note as well. Sure. The, uh, the I think there should be an opportunity for a coalition to come together in Congress to do something about excessive drug prices, the excessive drug prices that Medicare pays. There's a lot of support on the left for doing something, not they say negotiating, but uh, negotiating more aggressively, changing Congress's posture toward, uh, toward drug pricing so that the Medicare program pays less, so that we don't see it paying these sorts of outrageous prices that should be able to garner some support on the political right. After all, if Medicare pays less for these drugs, what that means is the tax burden of the Medicare program will be lower. And that should appeal to small government conservatives. There are some Republicans in Congress who have tried to do this. Chuck Grassley in the Senate has advanced legislation to try to change the structure of Medicare Part D coverage so that it is less inherently inflationary. And, uh, and and yet he has gotten a lot of he's gotten pushback from some self-described limited government conservatives uh, who want to keep government spending high, and we could talk about why that is. But uh, I think what's really preventing more Republicans from coming on board and, and and conservatives from coming on board with those Democratic plans is then Democrats want to go spend that money someplace else rather than return those savings to the taxpayer. If they decided to do that to return the savings to taxpayers, they could maybe build a broader coalition for doing something about uh, about the excessive prices that Medicare pays for prescription drugs. I think well, we have time for one, one more other quick thought. Okay. Yeah, just one quick thought, okay. which is yeah. if this drug actually worked for Alzheimer's, we should be thrilled to pay $50,000 for it, right? The, the, the series of drugs that treated hep C were priced at, you know, $85,000, $90,000. Uh, and there was a huge fight over that, but it was a cure. I mean, how extraordinary is that, right? We, we ought to pay a huge amount of money, a staggering amount of money for cures, and we should pay very little for things that don't do very much, let alone um, have huge side effects with limited evidence of efficacy. To, to, uh, this will be the last question because we're running out of time, and I'm, I apologize to everyone out there. I have a lot of questions, and this this is a very interesting topic. We could, we can go on 
much longer, uh, so I couldn't take all of them. But this one, last one, um, let me find. Uh, well, let me see. I, I, yo, I apologize. I'm taking long on this. I, it was. Uh, all right, never mind. I can't find it, so I'll let it go. We're out of time, and I want to thank uh, my guests for this very interesting discussion. Uh, for those of you who came in late and didn't see all of it, it's going to be uh, recorded and archived, and you'll be able to view it within the next 24 hours, possibly even later today, on our website. And uh, uh, please uh, look for future uh, Cato Online events. Thank you very much to uh, uh, Nicholas Bagley and David Hyman and Michael Cannon, uh, and have a great day, everyone out there. Thank you.